0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
1: Golden, Colorado. It's episode 68 of the Equalizer podcast, and it is a road-weary group tonight. Uh, Dan Loletta and John Halloran. Dan, that's me. I spend about 11 days in France That's only one-third of what John accomplished being there for the entire 2019 World Cup. Hard to believe it's only been a week since the final, and already a lot of soccer developments uh, during that time. But we're going to spend the next little while just kind of rehashing the World Cup a little bit, talking about the future with NWSL, which had its debut on ESPN News today. And I can't imagine if you watched it that you're not looking for more. NWSL it was quite a fascinating second half of that game today but first John uh how are you 32 days I think in France uh, well done and uh how are you feeling you happy to be home
0: uh I'm definitely happy to be home I uh I enjoyed very much my first two weeks in France and then in, uh then it started to drag a bit <laughs> in the last four or five days was was a real struggle so definitely happy to be uh in a place where I have air conditioning and, and drip coffee and, uh, <laughs> and uh, getting along a little bit better now.
1: Yeah, I came in on the last week and a half, a little more than a week. So I guess I saw you about the start of the third week. And uh, you had had it by then. You, you, <laughs> you, you were pretty road weary at that point. So yeah. at least that uh, last last week was all in one spot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that actually was was nice not to have to switch hotels for the ninth or tenth time. I kind of lost track of how how often we were on the move, but uh, yeah, that was definitely definitely nice to uh, be in one spot there for the last uh, week or so.
1: Even the U.S. had to switch hotels when we didn't during Leon. There after a little hotel gate, right? Uh, Mess with England, but you know we joke a little bit. But on, on a serious note, I felt like when I got there that everyone who had been for the entire month was clearly ready to go home and that there were a lot of logistical issues and nobody cares about us, about the media and the logistical issues. But I mean, for starters, there were a lot of fans. I think that, I mean, first of all, Lyon was like, you know, America light for that week. I think literally, I think everybody in my hotel was at the U S England game. But the next night, I felt like a lot of people told me that they weren't going to Sweden-Netherlands just because it was such a logistical hassle to get to U.S. England. They had the games at 9 local time. They ended at 11. The uh, public transit shuts down at 12. There's kind of a disconnect there, I think, between France being like, yeah, let's host the Women's World Cup, but you know, you got to kind of make allowances for some of the differences going on. And I don't think they did a very good job with that. I Hope everyone who went wound up having a good time, but uh, definitely some nightmare stories coming out of this last month in France.
0: Yeah, and you know it, it's it was kind of funny because you know we got to see uh, four different cities, at least those of us who followed the the u s. through it. I think Paris was probably the best equipped just because it's a large metropolitan area. They had the Metro running till midnight. I think it probably wasn't as bad in each city for the fans um, because they did have maybe a 45 minute window after the final whistle to kind of get out of the stadium and find their, their transportation. Um, definitely a little rougher on us, you know, leaving a stadium at 1230 when, when most of the public transit had shut down at, at 12. But I do think there were two big exceptions um, for the fans. The first was that we ran into it in the group stage in La Lahav um, because their public transit shut down a little bit early. The stadium was not near the city center. It was a small city to begin with. So fans were kind of scattered, um, not only in La Havre but into some of the surrounding communities as well. And uh, when uh, Jeff and I left the stadium, it was around 1230, and there was a cab line that looked to be about 200 people deep. And wow. uh, we heard later there were only three cabs in the entire city running that night. And there, was, there, were, there really wasn't Uber um, in the smaller cities, in Rance, um, in La Havre. And so a lot of people uh, were just kind of stuck. And there weren't trains uh, back to Paris or or any of the the major cities. So a lot of people who either hadn't really planned ahead or had just kind of assumed that there'd be public transit from a major sporting event with 25,000 people after the final whistle really, really got stuck um, in a bad spot.
1: Excuse me. I just feel like that's something that just shouldn't happen. Like... You know, I was with a friend of mine for part of the time and he he spends a lot of time in France and he was saying, well, France is not into the same excesses as the United States is into. Fair enough. But I feel like if you are bidding to host what is the spotlight event for a particular sport, then you also by bidding for that, you are accepting some responsibility to actually make allowances for that event to be in your country. And I, I just didn't feel like there were enough of those.
0: I, I agree. And, you know, I think there's, there's a few different things kind of underlying that. I know I had called the French embassy with a question a few weeks before the tournament. And the woman I spoke with, who was a French citizen, wasn't even aware they were hosting the tournament. Um, I think there's a cultural difference. I think the French sense of urgency uh, is a lot different than, you know, kind of how Americans perceive, uh, you see that, you know, just when you go out for a meal, it's, it's a very kind of casual laid Mm -hmm. back, you know, process. Which I liked,
1: I liked that a little bit.
0: Yeah. You know, and and again, there, there's benefits to that. I'm sure they live a much healthier life, um, than, than most of us do, but, um, yeah, that was a problem. And then I think the local organizing committees really dropped the ball in a sense. if I start with Lahav, when we first got to Lahav, the person, uh, the volunteer at the train station who, who was welcoming people didn't even know that there was a bus system in Lahav. Wow. And that That's seemed, bad. Right. That seems bad. Um, it's also a problem because that kind of stuff didn't show up on like Google Maps. The only reason I knew about it was I had done some research ahead of time and uh, the bus system turned out to be a lifesaver if you knew where it ran and how it ran, but local people, or at least the volunteers, weren't very helpful uh, in in helping people figure that out. And then when we got to Lyon, they started a major downtown public transit project the day before the first semifinal. So they ripped up the streets and the tram rail lines right next to the train station, the right. day the before, the, the big summer.
1: train station in the whole city.
0: Right, and that's where everybody had to go to get tram lines to the stadium, to get trains in and out of the city. Um, and then the day after the final, um, the tram line near my hotel was completely out of service. And this was a Monday, so this wasn't you know a holiday. It wasn't a Sunday, and so I ended up having to hike several miles just to get to the train station uh, on Monday to get back to Paris for my flight on Tuesday. And I think a lot of people got stuck in situations like that where there just wasn't public transit in the middle of this massive event where tens of thousands of people are trying to move about a city.
1: Yeah, it definitely, I I didn't feel unwelcome per se, but I felt like the World Cup at large was not necessarily welcomed. At least in Lyon, I was, I got to Paris, I was at USA France, but I I I wouldn't say I spent enough time in Paris and I wasn't media credentialed for that game. So, not sure that I can speak on that. I will say, and I know nobody wants to hear us whining, my bed in Lyon is the least comfortable thing <laughs> I have ever slept on. I think I'd rather sleep standing up next time. So, I was very happy to get back one night in Paris afterwards and then back home to my very comfortable bed. Uh, but, kind of trying to get off the logistics, um, I know this, I think this is the first World Cup you've covered at all, certainly the first one you've covered wire to wire, just give me a sense of what it was like and how you enjoyed it, pros and cons, what the, you know, what it was like following the U.S. around France. I
0: think the energy uh, around the team was great. Um, I think just being a member of the media, there were, there were, well, I, I'll i put it this way. There were good storylines to follow. There were also annoying storylines to follow. Um, and it was a little frustrating. You know, we, we, we got into Paris and so this was. I don't even know, I guess, four days after the Thailand game and people were still asking the questions about celebrations and 13 nothing wins. And, you know, some of those storylines didn't seem to, to die out. Um, the, the England storylines, the Swedish storylines, going back to the 2016 Olympics. So those, those kinds of things were, were tiring. But uh, there were a lot of great stories, you know, Jess McDonald and, and what she did in this tournament. That was a great story. Allie Krieger coming back into this roster and, and playing the part that she did was a great story. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of stories like that that were fun to see Sam Mewis having a, I think a really unexpectedly big part in the tournament. That was a fun story. Alyssa Nair having her her moment in the sun. That was a fun story. So Um, I think that in in the energy in the games was really tremendous and very enjoyable. I think anybody who was at any of those games, um, you know, in six of the seven felt very strong pro-America energy in the stadium. And then even the one, the the game against France in the quarterfinal, even though the, the French fans had a larger fan base, that was fun. Just listening to them sing and chant and try to try to bring their team back in that game it was just a, a tremendous thing to experience uh in a first-hand basis
1: the atmosphere at that usa france game was unbelievable i was in the stands i was really hoping france would equalize late just to see what it, or just to hear what it would sound like because it, when renard school, first of all before the game it was like all american fans making noise and i was like wow this is really something this is going to be a completely pro american crowd and then when they came out with the anthems it was almost like the french fans showed up instantly and were louder than the american fans the other thing is american fans i feel like get very tense very quickly even in the final when it wasn't going perfectly because remember they had scored in what 12 minutes or less every game and you know the end of that first half all of a sudden the netherlands is taking it to the u.s a little bit and there's still no score american fans get tense quickly and stop making noise but the French crowd, when Renard scored in the 80th, 81st minute, and then for the four or five minutes after that, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard a stadium as loud as that in soccer or any other sport. Yeah, it was, yeah.
0: was 45,000 fans. And we, we actually got to watch this guy right in front of the press bureau start um, an and Ale Le Bleu chant. Like, literally, <laughs> he was the one who started chanting and within six to seven seconds, the whole stadium. Was that's it.
1: fantastic yeah i always ask myself like how does this start like who starts these things <laughs> you know it seems like the whole stadium's just going it's got to it's got to originate at some point all right well that's uh the uh trials and travails of being in france we'll come back we'll talk some actual soccer in case you missed it usa world cup champions for the fourth time and second in a row john Haller and dan loletta this is episode 68 of the equalizer Podcast. Segment two, episode 68, Equalizer podcast, John Halloran with Dan Lolletta, and a reminder to please rate and review this podcast, the better ratings and better reviews that you give us, the more great content that uh, we can give to you. So please rate and review our podcast today. Um, Also, John, big props to you and Jeff. I know it was different people sometimes along the way. I jumped in on the last day, but those live shots were fantastic uh, from France the whole month, reviewing everything. Um, World Cup, the actual soccer, um, you know, I think you can look at Spain. I think you can look at England. I think you can look at France. I messed up the order there. I think you can look at the Netherlands. And I think all four of those teams could have walked off the field saying, man, we had them. We had them right where we wanted them. We couldn't put them away. And the U.S. wins again. Seven European teams in the U.S. in the quarters. And the U.S. prevails. I I think it's fair to say the world has caught up but they haven't caught up in terms of beating them, at least in these last two World Cup cycles.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I would agree that the world is, has, is caught up, but I would argue that that's kind of always been the case. Like, it wasn't that, that the world is, is as close as they've been in the past, you know, whether this is going back to the days of China or Norway or Japan. Like, the U.S. has always had somebody on their back. I think maybe the fact that there's more competitors, um, where, you know, the U S from the round of 16 had to battle, um, through, you know, that and the quarterfinals to get to a tough semi, to get to a tough final. But, you know, when you look at the, the 91 final was tough, the 99 semi and final were tough 2015, the semi was tough. So I think maybe the field is deeper, um, in terms of, you know, how many rounds they have to play that are tough, tough games to get through. Um, so in that respect, uh, I would agree with that.
1: Best U.S. team ever. Yeah,
0: you know, it was funny because we we kept having that. That was another kind of annoying narrative in France, although I think I even wrote that angle at one point, um, you know, because the players were talking about it. Um, and I I don't know. I I think you can definitely make that case. And I'll tell you why. I think if you look at, you know, 99, that was on home soil. 2015 was as close to home soil as you can come. Um, I think being in France, doing it, you know, in Europe, doing it against four European teams uh, in the knockout stages. uh, And I think, The fact that Spain and the Netherlands in particular basically abandoned their style of play says something about how they thought if they tried to play the U.S. straight up, they knew they'd lose. And I think that's kind of a tip of the hat of respect, that they both had to alter their strategy uh, to think that they had a
1: chance to win. I think it's the deepest U.S. team we've ever seen. I know the ninety-nine team gets an awful lot of credit, but you go back to and you look at players like Sarah Whalen and Lori Fair, nice players. But and and Whalen actually did come into the final when Akers got knocked out by the friendly fire from Brian Ascari at the end of regulation time. But I don't feel like that team had players that you could just pick out of the lineup, put them in, and you'd be mostly fine. Here you had Rapino doesn't play the semi, and Kristen Press not only plays but scores the first goal of the game. Um, you know, let's not get too crazy about Sauerbrunn not playing against Thailand. But you have O'Hara has to come out in the final. Ali Krieger comes in. I didn't think Krieger was spectacular. I didn't think she needed to be spectacular, but she did what she had to do. Forty-five minutes, and those were the decisive forty-five minutes in the World Cup. So even though Jill Ellis cut the bench down a lot in this tournament, I think this is the deepest. The U.S. has ever been. And I really do think they maybe could have sustained a big injury or two. I mean, just look at the midfield. If I told you even six weeks ago that Lindsey Horan would not play in the World Cup final and the U.S. would win, you might think I was crazy because Lindsey Horan, for a while, has probably been, right, the best U.S. midfielder. But certainly, you know, if you take Ertz, who sits deeper out of the equation, and she pretty much fell out of the rotation. I mean, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, I think you could make the argument that Haran for the last eighteen months is—you could make the argument that she's the best midfielder in the world over the last. Oh yeah, definitely. And then she doesn't play in some of the multiple of the most important games. Um, that's that's insane. But again, Mewis was spectacular. So, um, and and Lavelle, especially, you know, at the end had a strong tournament. So, um, you're right in terms of. How many other teams could sit the best midfielder in the world? And of course, the answer is zero.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, I you know, I get the sense she's not one hundred percent healthy, and that's kind of what made the decision for Jill Ellis to go with Mewis and uh, Lavelle because Earth was always going to be in there. I thought Earth should have won the Golden Ball, by the way.
0: I think you could argue she was the most important player for sure, um, because. All the other players, I think, at some point had a game or a half where they really struggled, um, and I can't remember any period where Ertz struggled, and we, I think we kind of know that when she doesn't play that that midfield, uh, at least uh, in the past, has tended to fall apart, although I will say that Haran did a nice job when she played in the sixth this tournament as well.
1: Yeah, and I thought Ertz was uh, really, really good against France. I thought she sat a little bit deeper than she normally does, and I think she pretty much did the back line a solid because I think she cleaned up an awful lot of stuff before it got back to... I want to get to Megan Rapinoe in a minute, who is probably the most famous athlete in the world right now. Maybe uh, Djokovic and Federer after their great tennis match on Sunday. But um, of the other teams, you know, France played their match maybe kind of similar to the what we were talking about before but you know you know culturally it wasn't quite as um what was the word you used um can't remember the word you used in the first segment but you know not as um they didn't have as much yes urgency there you go and as a result they're down one nothing uh england right there I mean, was there a team that you're most disappointed in? Is there a team that you're thinking, all right, 2023 should be theirs or even the, the Olympics next year, which France is not in. But, um, you know, who do you like coming out of this, of the also Rams?
0: I'll tell you, the, the team that I thought showed the most fight um, in the knockout rounds against the U.S. was England. Um, and I was particularly impressed with the play of Ellen White, who, probably could have had three goals against the U.S. had things just gone slightly different.
1: Yeah, and then then the other one that got disallowed in the third place game as well. I thought Sweden, I don't know if I think Sweden is like ready to become the best team in the world, but I was impressed with how tough they played. I didn't mind the way they handled the group game against the U.S., and I thought they would have had a chance if they had gotten there in the final, because I think the way they play the U.S., and this is not, you know, 2016, regardless of that. I just think the way Sweden plays the U.S., which, ironically enough, I thought Spain gave the best blueprint about how to beat the U.S. when they went, as you said, completely off character. Yeah. I thought Sweden would have had a pretty good shot in the final.
0: I do, too, although I'm also glad they didn't make it because I would not have wanted to watch that game. I think it would have been even <laughs> worse than the final was. It just would have been a bad soccer game. Um so, listen, credit to Sweden and what they did, but they're not really a very fun team to watch.
1: Agree. Although I do like to watch Blackstinius up top.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: And sometimes the fact that they're not fun makes her more fun because it gets her <laughs> isolated more often. And she's actually, I think, maybe better when she's isolated. And boy, if Spain gets a couple of players who can score, they're going to be really dangerous going forward. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, Megan Rapinoe wins the golden ball, golden boot and all that with uh, the six goals, three of them from the penalty spot. And a lot of people poo-poo penalty goals. But let's note that all three of her penalty goals were in the knockout round when the game was tied. Spain was in the last 10 minutes, and the Netherlands game was just after an hour had been played. But And I've written about this, and I've tweeted about it, and I know I'm probably not going to persuade anyone who's not on my side yet. But I can't get over how smoothly Megan Rapino handles herself with a microphone and cameras in her face while simultaneously playing maybe not the best soccer, because I didn't think she was the best player, but she was the best Megan Rapino. Like, she did what Megan Rapino does. She never didn't speak. She doesn't, she never doesn't answer a question. Doesn't matter who asks it or how absurd you might think it sounds on the way up to her. She looks at them, she gives them a thoughtful answer, and because of that, she has this platform that I have rarely seen an athlete have.
0: Yeah, I agree. I thought um, again, their, their penalties, at least three of them were, um, but the the second one against Spain, where she's not going to take it, she's already taken one, they switch you know, Ellis tells her to take it. So now she's going to take a second penalty. So the keeper's already seen, you know, where she wants to go, where her preferred place to go is. So now she's got to take a second one. And I don't know if you remember, but the official made her move the ball yep. on one as well. So, you know, you're, you're in your own head. This is right when all of the the video stuff had blown up. So now you've got that added in on top of all of this. Um, and then she goes and makes that third penalty in the final. So I, I agree. Um, and, and the same with the, you know, what you were saying about the microphone in her face. You know, I know that people liked to pull small snippets of what she was saying and certainly the, the most controversial stuff. But I think when you listen to her or at least have a chance to read the full quote of what she's saying in context, a lot of times. I think people would be surprised at how much nuance is actually in there. You know, when she spoke about equal pay, when she spoke about FIFA not doing enough for the women's game, um, there were a lot of little nuances in there. You know, when, when she was talking about equal pay, she made sure to say that the U.S. Federation, even though she feels they should be doing more, has done more than any other federation in the world. Um, and so there was a lot of nuance in those statements when she talked about FIFA and their and their pay and their prize money she mentioned revenue which you know I think a lot of people would see as a concession uh, mm-hmm. to the people who make that argument constantly so there's a lot more nuance in there her she's surprisingly I think well spoken on those type of issues because I think a lot of us even those of us who have very strong opinions in those areas, even those of us who maybe have written about those, would have a very difficult time extemporaneously speaking on those in the way that she does. It's really, to me, it's, it's remarkable. When I'm writing, I have a chance to go back and reread what I have wrote two or three times and make sure that it's written a very specific way and that I've you know, been sure to be nuanced in what I'm saying. She's doing this off the cuff, has no idea what the questions are going to be, Is Speaking about issues which are exceptionally controversial and doing it with a level of nuance that really impressed me.
1: And a couple of things. First of all, she's obviously evolved over the years and she was maybe, I don't know about ostracized, but I think there was a time where the team considered getting rid of her after she was kneeling down during the national anthem starting, I guess, three years ago now. Uh, Would you agree with that, that it was not certain that she'd be around
0: yeah, because I think there there was a point where it looked like her usefulness had passed. And, you know, we know that that U.S. soccer, at least in the past, has sometimes put up with uh, more colorful characters
1: um,
0: <laughs> with when they're still useful on the field. Right. But, you know, if if you're going to use lose the usefulness and then still be a distraction, um You know, they're probably going to want to cut ties with you. And I think that's that's not just true of the U.S. I think that's true of most teams, whether you're talking about a club team, a high school team, a college team, an NWSL team. You know, you don't want distractions, Um, but she performed even at a time when all of these things were swirling around her.
1: But what I was going to say is that she has essentially always been like this. I can remember being at the 2014 NWSL championship and they had training at this completely out of the way college that was like 45 minutes outside where they were playing the final in in the Seattle area. It was raining. We were standing underneath rainy bleachers. It was me, Jeff Kasuf, Graham Hayes from ESPN. And I think there was a Japanese TV uh, crew there for a Kawasumi story. And Rapino gave us the exact same type of time and attention. Now, we weren't asking her about equal pay and things like that, but you ask her a question, she looks at you, she gives you a thoughtful answer. The other thing, and you can maybe speak more to this, don't be under the illusion that covering the US during a World Cup is where you wake up in the morning and you say, hey, I want to talk to Megan Rapino today. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. They bring out one or two players a day, you don't get to decide who they are, you don't get one on ones. How many players after the Trump video dropped would have told the press officer, I'm not going out there. You send somebody else out there. Hope Solo didn't speak after the first day of the 2015 World Cup when she was the controversial figure. And Rapino just kept going and going and going and going. And just before you comment on that, she almost missed this uh, press conference after the final. She was player of the match because she was in doping. And with about two questions left, Door opens and Rapino flies in, takes her seat. Jill says, Jill Ellis says, did you pass? Did you? she said, I just killed doping. A lot of players would have just stalled long enough to wait out that press conference. She doesn't do any of that ever. Yeah,
0: I agree. And, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because it, it takes me back to 2016 and the sendoff series um, when she was kind of a controversial inclusion on that 2016 roster because she had not fully recovered from uh, her ACL. She had a calf injury that she was carrying at the time. She wasn't even training. And uh, we were down in Kansas City covering the Costa Rica game, which I think was the last game they played before they left for Brazil. And she was speaking out on issues. Um, There was, and I don't remember, I I don't follow basketball very much, but there was a protest happening in the WNBA uh, at that time. And so yeah, they,
1: they did a media blackout and they had on some sort of some T-shirts. I don't remember what they said. And they refused to speak after a game about anything, but what was on the shirts.
0: And uh, I think it was Meg Linehan asked her about that. It, you know, it was, it was literally a two person scrum. It was me, Megan, Meg, and Meg, Megan, Megan. Um, and uh, again, just boom, right into her answer. You know, she, she thought about it. She knew what she wanted to say. Um, and a lot of players would shy away from, a, you know, to your point would shy away from that type of a question or say, Oh, I'm just here to talk about soccer.
1: And, uh, you, the other thing is she was on the Rachel Maddow show and Rachel Maddow said, you know, what can people do going forward right into the NWSL? And so many national team players don't mention their league when they're with the national team They say, well, I'm focused, you know, I'm in with the national team right now. And I kind of want to focus on that. But one more thing, she called me on the 4th of July, 2017, for a story. Not that many players would do that on the 4th of July. And I asked her, that was a year after the Olympics. I said, do you have any regrets about being in the Olympics? Because I, I think, personally, that that cost them, you know, maybe they wouldn't have won the gold medal, but Rapino being on that roster when it was only 18 and putting her in the Sweden game, and then she couldn't make it to 120, and that's how Tobin Heath ended up at right back. I think that was a horrible, I think that's Jill Ellis's worst moment as a coach, not the mismanagement of that game, but having Rapinoe on the roster to begin with. But anyway, I said, you know, any regrets, you know, about, you know, about the Olympics? And she said, I don't have any regrets. Jill might have a different answer. So, you know, straight up like, hey, yeah, maybe it was the wrong decision to take me. I tried my best, not going to turn down the Olympic roster. You know, maybe Jill did it I, to make, you know, and you know what? Four years ago, we're not getting the U.S. on the Rachel Maddow show or meet the press either. And, right. and that's, that, that's because of her. All right, enough Megan Rapinoe gushing. Uh, That's two segments in the book. We'll come back. There has been some NWSL news, so we'll talk a little bit about that on the other side with John Halloran. This is Dan Lolletta, episode 68 of the Equalizer podcast. Third and final segment of episode 68 of the Equalizer podcast, and it's time for the Sports Ref Stat of the Week. And how about this? Not easy for Ivy League players to get into professional sports leagues, whether it be the NWSL or any other. But this weekend, we had not one but two Ivy League players score stoppage time game winners. Not only that, both Princeton products, Jen Hoy, who is a fourth round pick of the Red Stars way back in the original 2013 draft. She gets one for Sky Blue FC, who are now 2-0 since they let go Denise Reddy as head coach. And then two days later in the ESPN News debut, Tyler Lucy, also from Princeton, a Portland Thorns draftee, she gets the game winner after Aaron Greening, a rookie, scores her first NWSL goal in the 90th minute, and it looked like Orlando would spoil the party for Portland. So first time we get two Ivy League players score stoppage time goals, same weekend, Jen Hoy for Sky Blue and... Tyler Lucy for the Portland Thorns. And that is your Sports Ref Stat of the Week. And you can check out new and improved women's soccer stats each day at fbref.com. That's fbref.com. And we thank the folks at Sports Reference for their continued support of the Equalizer podcast. And, John, as we transition into NWSL, uh, as a Chicago guy, I'm personally, uh, you're the Chicago guy, not me, but I'm personally thrilled to see Jen Hoy waking up here in the last couple of weeks. Really nice person um, and really made a lot of herself for the fourth round pick. Might be the best fourth round pick the league's ever seen to this point. I don't know how well you know her from your time there.
0: Yeah, I mean, she she was a pretty consistent goal scorer in Chicago. I mean, you know, she wasn't scoring 15 goals a a season, but, you know, she'd get six or eight or. Um, and again, for a fourth-round pick, that's pretty amazing. Um, it's kind of interesting too how Rory ended up bringing her in too. Um, she scored against his club team years ago when he oh, wow. did, and he he just remembered that and uh, he, uh, he you know took a shot on her and and she's been, had quite the career.
1: And I remember when they first started out, and she was still at school finishing up her degree. Right. And in case, you know, in case nobody knows, Ivy League athletes do not get athletic scholarships. So that's why it's difficult for them because, you know, the best athletes are getting the scholarships mostly to other schools. And it's just not as much of a focus, even if you are worthy of having gotten a scholarship somewhere else. But Rory Dame said, yeah, you know, Jen Hoy is finishing up her degree and she'll be in in May and she'll be added to the roster. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, all right, it's a fourth round pick from Princeton you know, she's probably not going to actually make the roster. And I think the next year she scored in like four or five consecutive games. And, uh, yeah, she went away for a little bit, um, had some injury woes, but, you know, it's nice to see her get going. Um, League news, obviously the TV deal with ESPN that started off uh, with the ESPN news game on Sunday, Portland and Orlando. Also Budweiser becoming the uh, official – uh, beer of the nwsl it didn't seem like they had a super large presence in week one they mentioned it on espn they mentioned it on the streams that they have naming rights to the mvp the final and the playoffs but we haven't gotten any like actual promotion or actually what that name will be but i guess cautiously optimistic that there are some good things happening with a league that kind of needs them at this point
0: yeah, I mean, look, it would be better if they had a full-year television deal or if they had a, a, a television deal that extended into next season. Um, it is what it is, but picking up the last, uh, what is it, 14 total games, uh, 11 regular season, and the three playoff games, it, it's better than nothing at this point. Um, Budweiser, people have talked about the lack of a national sponsor forever. Um, so picking that up is good, and um, – there's also, I think, and uh, in, in Equalizer might have some some more on this in the next week or so. But uh, there was some involvement from Soccer United Marketing, which uh, has kind of always been a complaint of NWSL folks: is that some, which markets the national team and Major League Soccer, does not market the NWSL. So their involvement might mark a turning point in in the league being able to, you know, get some of these bigger sponsors, and, and hopefully that helps take the league up a notch, you know, in terms of salaries and resources and, and what these teams can do for the players and what they can do to push this league to the next level, because I think we always talk about this idea of the World Cup bump, and some people think it's a myth, um, but the idea here is to take that next incremental step forward.
1: So I don't think the bump is a myth. I think the sustainability of the bump is not a given. I think Major League Soccer has done amazing things with World Cup bumps in their existence. I think the NWSL completely dropped the ball in the 2015 bump. And as a result, you know, the Dash are celebrating their biggest crowd since the 18 home opener, which is 5,200. They got 13,000 after the 2015 World Cup. And they wound up with that, you know, they wound up promoting that Lloyd was going to play and Morgan Bryan was going to play. They had one other person, I forget who it was. didn't happen. And the fans are like, well, why am I buying tickets to this game to see these players stand at midfield and wave? And, you know, they didn't do as good a job this time because there needed to be better communication about when the players were coming back, but at least they didn't promote them as being part of the weekend.
0: Well, that's a, that's a, yeah, I think that's another ball of wax that we need to talk about because, you know, I know that there have been times where players have been part of a team's marketing strategy for a given game. And I know for a fact that those players won't be there because of a national team commitment, um, which always feels like a a mistake at best and and dishonest at worst. Um, So, you know, I think the league does need to do a better job marketing uh, not only in in these moments like World Cups, but also being very upfront about when players are going to be there. I had a friend uh, call me from Raleigh, yesterday on his way to the courage game and he was saying you know oh well you know we think a few of these players might might be playing and i said listen none of those players are going to (laughs) be playing i don't know you know i said listen they got a week off from when they were released and they weren't released until like wednesday i said they're not playing and he still seemed convinced and he was bringing his his two kids to the game you know to see sam muis and crystal dunn and and that, you know, they were there, but they weren't playing. And I, I'm not blaming the courage for that. I don't – I didn't see anything. But there's, there's – whether it's a misconception or uh, people just not paying – you know, we obviously live and breathe this stuff. Um, so I don't think we see it the way the average fan does.
1: Well, that's the thing. I don't think that the answer to getting this league to the next level is creating more people like us who live and breathe it. I think the answer is getting people – on the fringes. You know, the number of people today, Sunday, that I knew who were all of a sudden tennis fans because this epic final was going on was off the charts. You need that for the NWSL. That's what happens for the World Cup, too. All of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, you were at the World Cup? I watched that. That's so great. And I'm like, hey, that's great. There's a league. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's a league. You know, you need the diehard people are there. Not enough of them, but the diehard people are there. But you've got to get to a point where it's possible to be a fan without being all in. And I think better than ESPN showing the game today was that on the homepage, about an hour after it, I was scrolling down, and if you're not familiar with the ESPN homepage, you get a lead story and the news stack, and then it'll be like NBA and a couple of NBA stories, and then Major League Baseball and a couple of MLB stories. It was actually an NWSL scoreboard, and I think there was a story. I didn't click on it because I was in a hurry. But I think that's more important because that sort of thing will get people with NWSL on their minds. Not, you know, drive-by TV doesn't happen anymore because you don't have to flip the channels anymore.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um,
1: and again, if you watch this Orlando-Portland game in its entirety, I don't know how you're not going back for more, but I would like to stress, um, you know, don't watch one game and have it be a dull 0-0 draw or a courage 5 nothing blowout over a bottom team. And say, ah, this league stinks. It's just like any other league. Some games are great. Some games are boring. Sometimes, you know, a team clicks on all cylinders. Sometimes there's injuries. But there are good players, good storylines, and good soccer to be had if you give it some time.
0: Sometimes it rains.
1: Yeah, like in Houston last (laughs) night, apparently. Um, Any thoughts on the league? Um, I know neither one of us are completely locked in. Again, after France, it was quite a bit easier in Canada to follow the lead when we were sort of on the same time zone. Um, but any just quick thoughts on, on, you know, where it goes from here, you know, you know on the field or off the field, well, anything you I want mean, to go. I you think want. like most people,
0: I'm a little surprised at where the table's at right now. Um, I think probably if, if we just ran through it real quickly, I think we all kind of expected... Um, Sky Blue and Orlando to be where they're at. I personally expected Houston uh, to be in a better spot. I, I had picked them as a playoff team. They were kind of my dark horse this year. I thought... I mean,
1: that, we all picked where to be the MVP. That's not happening.
0: Yeah, you know, I just thought that this period during the World Cup was when they would shine um, and that hasn't happened. I think Chicago has struggled more than I thought uh, that they would have during this time because they still, even though they obviously lost some very important players, um, they still had a lot of talent, and Kerr was there longer and came back sooner, um, and they have so many kind of like second-tier U.S. players on their team that I really thought they would have been better off. Um, I think Seattle did a little bit better than I thought during this period. Um, I the, Vlatko and I think Casey Murphy deserve a lot of credit for kind of putting them where they're at at this point in the table. And uh, I think like most people, I think Washington's probably doing a little bit better than I thought.
1: And Lydia Williams is hurt now too. So picked up an injury at the World Cup. So Casey Murphy will be the goalkeeper and see, uh, I guess it's Tacoma now for a while. I think that Fishlock injury though, that, you know, I watched them play North Carolina on saturday night and you know it's no shame to lose in north carolina but that midfield without fishlock that's going to be tough to overcome they did a good job bridging the gap till she got back but from here the rest of the way i think that's a that's a dicey proposition and yanez who's played that role a little bit in the last year and a half she left the game injured on saturday haven't heard what's up with her yet right um forgot uh where i was gonna go after this um so maybe that's a good time uh to say goodnight, uh, players will be back for two weeks and they'll be gone again. There's a Rose Bowl game August 3rd for the U.S. Has that been announced officially or just reported by everybody who covers the team?
0: Uh, let me double check because I'm pretty sure I saw it on their website.
1: Uh, so that, but that's and while you looked that up, that's another week that players will be gone and that, that's what kills us. You know, we can deal with the World Cup and certain other things surrounding the World Cup at what point is U.S. soccer and the players look out for the league and not pull them away? I mean, there's, an ES, you know, there's a Rapino ESPN game that weekend, and she won't be there. She'll be in with the U.S. Yeah,
0: that game is official. It's on the website against okay. Ireland, August 3rd. Yeah, but there are, there are four NWSL games that weekend. Um, and listen, people we know, people we respect, people we trust had reported that this was not going to happen, that these players are going to be taken outside of international breaks. And uh, (laughs) literally the first game is outside of an international break and is going to uh, cost the league 23 of their best and most recognizable players.
1: And let's just, let's just get the word out as soon as possible. Get the word out, let everybody know. But all right, we got more uh, NWSL games coming up. We'll get back to a question and answer session on the podcast uh, next week. Before we go, John, just want to say uh, great work in France, not only covering the World Cup, but also breaking some stories back home. You were truly uh, on both continents at once, so keep that up. Thank you. All right, for John Halloran, I'm Dan Lauletta. You've been listening to episode 68 of the Equalizer Podcast. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough, and the ones who know